And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner. If I haven't met you yet, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. If you want to get information um, from us, get on our newsletter. Uh, we send out a weekly newsletter uh, via email. You can fill out one of those visitor cards in front of you. Um, I was so encouraged this week to see that um, as a congregation that we had given, that you had given um, almost $7,000 for our missionaries for their Christmas offering. And as a as one who was a supported missionary of this church for many years, I got to tell you that oftentimes um, our Christmas um, uh, was more than enhanced. It was a lot of times provided for by your gift of generosity. So thank you for that. If you would like to give your tithe and offering, there are plates in the back um, and up here in the front. You can also give online, mail a check into the office. We're going to be bringing, starting today, we're going to start bringing our children in back in from kids' worship to the Lord's Supper. Um, so you'll see them coming in as we begin the Lord's Supper. If uh, your child is in there um, in kids' worship, um, expect them to come back. If you prefer to keep your kids in here, we love for the children uh, to be in here. Um, and uh, don't worry about them if they're making noise. Uh, they aren't bothering us. That is a sweet sound to have God's children in the context of God's worship. Well, we're starting a new series in 1 Corinthians uh, this Sunday, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking, if you don't have a Bible or maybe new to Christianity, um, just checking out the claims of Jesus. We've printed the text for you on page 8. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those pew Bibles and take it home with you. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Starting with verse 1, reading through verse 3, this is God's Word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Would you pray with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, it is your voice that we want to hear. And so as our prophets stand in our presence and preach good news to us. And as our king do so with tremendous power. And as our priest bring our focus to your finished work on our behalf. We need you. We're desperate without you. Hopeless without you. But in your hands we are full of hope. For you've died and been raised in our reigning forevermore. And so we pray in your name. Amen. Well, there's a, there's a deep hunger in all of us for glory. A sense that, that word glory is a word that carries with it a sense of weightiness and worth. There's a deep hunger in all of us to gain that. To gain a sense of glory. To have weight and significance and worth in this world. And we try to accumulate it through our efforts. We often parade our achievements in front of others. And the goal is to draw attention. Look at me. I'm worth something in this world. I want you to acknowledge my glory. We can demand it sometimes. I need to be respected. 
And that hunger for glory is so massive that it drives an entire industry. Social media is driven by the machine of a hunger for glory. You take that hunger for glory away and almost the entire enterprise of social media collapses. Just props it up all the time. It's a deep driving force in our heart, a hunger. I I want to be somebody that gets noticed, that has weight and significance in this world. And when we can't gain it, then we're fine just being around it. Perhaps this is the reason this hunger for glory is why we're so infatuated with fame and famous people. Because if we can't have our own glory, at least we can identify with someone who has it. We're, We're happy just being glory adjacent. And it's expected. It shouldn't surprise us. We are made for this. When God created us in his image, he bestowed on us an inherent glory. We may have lost that glory in the fall when sin entered the world and wrecked us and brought guilt and condemnation instead. But the echoes of that original design just reverberate in the ears of our heart all the time. And we long for it to return. Because we were made not just in glory, but to be in the presence of great glory, in the presence of God with our own glory, in His glorious presence, in all of these cheap substitutes in our lives that we lust after and hunger for are just an attempt to gain what was lost when sin entered the world. The glory of the image of God dwelling in the glorious presence of God, uninhibited and fully flourishing. That's what we were made for. And this is what God is doing in Christ. Returning by redeeming glory, by redeeming a people to himself. One of the great privileges of the glory that is in Christ Jesus is to belong to his church. And so here in 1 Corinthians, we have Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is most likely Paul's second letter out of three to this church in Corinth. And look in verse 2 after he introduces himself in verse 1, how he describes the church that he's writing to. This is the church of God. It's his special creation. The church is of a necessity for what God is doing in the world. And therefore, it's a necessity for the followers of Jesus. The Bible knows nothing of a relationship with Jesus, divorced from living that relationship out in his church. Consider this. This is a letter that is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. If you're in Corinth and you aren't in this gathering of people that receive this letter from Paul, then you are not receiving the grace of God that comes through the word of God. This letter, like most of Paul's letters, are meant to be read in a corporate gathering of God's people to the church of God that is in Corinth. Paul clearly has an understanding of what he's doing in writing this letter. 
he is not just giving them advice and an opinion, but he is writing God's word to God's people. And they are experiencing in this moment as they're gathered together corporately and his word is being read, they're experiencing the power of God in what is going on in that moment. At the time of his writing, Paul's most likely in Ephesus where he had set up home base in the mid-50s. He had planted this church in Corinth in, during his second missionary journey. We read about this short period of time of 18 months that Paul was here. In Acts chapter 18, he had preached the gospel in Athens, had traveled south to Corinth where he began in the synagogue and then moved out from the synagogue into the broader world because they had rejected the gospel in the synagogue. And Paul had seen some fruit. This church was planted as the power of God through the gospel of God came to the city of Corinth. What leaves behind is not just a bunch of random converts as individuals, but a church, an organization of the people of Jesus Christ who had experienced the power of Jesus in their lives. And it is back to this church that he communicates. And so Paul introduces himself in verse 1 this way. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And an apostle literally means a sent one. An apostle, a sent one, was an authorized emissary that went out from the official. Paul isn't writing in a time when there's broadcast media and the internet. And so the way that you got an official message out to an official people was you sent an emissary, an authorized one. One who was set aside to speak on the behalf of the one who had authority. And when that sent one spoke, he spoke with the authority of the official. And Paul, from the very beginning, he's telling him, I'm not speaking my own words to you. I'm not coming on my own authority. He's called by the will of God and sent as an authorized representative of Jesus Christ to the people of Jesus Christ that is the church of God that is in Corinth. But he doesn't just come with the words of Jesus to the church of Jesus. That would be a tremendous thing. That would be good news in and of itself. But it gets even better than that because he comes as an apostle called by the will of God. And so when he writes to the people of Jesus, bringing the words of Jesus, he's also carrying with that message the power of Jesus. And that power comes from the authority of the risen and reigning king. It has the ability to make all things new, to change all things that are broken, to redeem everything that sin has cursed. I want you to make a note of this. If you've, if you've got your Seeing Jesus Together journal, there are pages in there for the Sunday sermon. We're going to spend a good, at least six months in the book of 1 Corinthians, so you can even make notes in the back end of that journal. Here's the major point of Paul's communicating through the book of 1 Corinthians that the power of Jesus is working in the church of Jesus as the word of Jesus comes through the apostles of Jesus. And in all of this, it's Jesus' power being displayed in foolish and weak ways. The word of Jesus brings the power of Jesus through the apostles of Jesus so that the power of Jesus redeems what's broken through the most foolish and weak ways. And in doing so, he's turning right side up what's upside down in this world. 
So look at verse 3. You can get a sense of what Paul is doing here. He says this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus called by the will of God. I'm writing to the church that is in Corinth. And then he says this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word grace, we usually think of it as something like this. It's, it's something like a gift, right, to undeserving sinners, something like God's kindness. Certainly, that's part of what's meant here by grace, but it's so much more. Some have defined grace with the acronym God's riches at Christ's expense as if it's just a gift that's given. Jesus earned this, and he's giving it to you. Um, you don't deserve it, and so it's God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a sense of that. So that's certainly part of the meaning of grace, but it's just part. It's so much more when the Bible, particularly Paul, uses the word grace. It means something much more, something along the lines of God's redemptive working, his power to redeem wrath-deserving, helpless sinners. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine there's a convict. He's, he's locked up in jail. He's murdered an innocent person. Now, we usually think of grace as something like someone bringing a gift to that convict or setting that convict free. Undeserving gift to an undeserving sinner. But grace, I'm suggest, is so much more. It, it would be like the judge constructing an innocent person to take that convict's place, storing up a trust of riches in that convict's name and putting it in his account and creating a new place for that convict in his home and then completely transforming the heart of that convict so that convict's heart now reflects out in his life so that he becomes like the generous judge who's done all of that. That's more than just giving a gift. It's redemptive working with power. For hell-deserving sinners who are under the curse of sin and deserving of God's wrath. That's what it means by grace. God's working to redeem what was lost by sin. Now, you can literally translate, almost put it every time. Every time you read grace in one of Paul's letters, you can think that. It's by grace you've been saved. Not just that he gave you a gift. He accomplished everything by the working of his redeeming power that you've been saved. Now look at what Paul's saying in verse 3. Grace to you. Now keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 1. Now flip all the way to the end, if you've got your Bibles, to the end of the book, to chapter 16, verse 23. And hear what he says. The beginning, grace to you. And at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now insert that definition of grace. The redemptive working of God's power. And read that into 1 Corinthians 1, 3. And then chapter 16, verse 23. Here's what Paul's saying, the redemptive working of God's power is coming to you in this letter because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when you get done reading this letter and hearing it in your presence, you would have experienced the redemptive working of God's power in your life. And so the grace of Jesus is going to be with you in that moment. 
And you see what he's saying. This is God's word to God's church. It's sent by one that God had appointed. It's not the opinions of man or the teaching of wise people, but the very power of God that changes everything. It comes with the authority of God that transforms everything. And it transforms the most outstandingly broken sinner in the most gracious of ways. This is Paul who's writing God's word to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now think about this. Think about this Paul who had become a follower of Jesus. He was a zealously religious man And he was awful. You can be both. You can be both zealously religious and deeply wicked. Let that be a warning to us. That's what Paul is. He was so zealously religious that he's hunting down Christians and handing them over to the Jewish officials to be killed. When Stephen is martyred, Paul is there holding the coats of the murderers and he's approving. He's cheering them on as stones are breaking apart Stephen's flesh and crushing his skull. Paul is there with a smile on saying, let me give you your coats so you can do this to this man. And that Paul is caught by Jesus in the middle of his journey to Damascus to gather up more men and women so they could be slaughtered too, all out of religious zeal and Jesus appears to him strikes him blind radically changes his life and in that moment where the grace of God appeared to Paul this man goes from seeing Jesus as the greatest threat to the world to seeing Jesus as the greatest blessing to the world that's the redeeming power of Jesus that's the grace of Jesus and it always comes to contra Deserving. The grace of God is a manifestation of his kindness, but it's a manifestation of his kindness that's married to his power. And that changes everything and makes it new. And so how do we access that? If you need that in your life and you do, and I do, how do I access that? You read this letter because it's God's word. It's his word to his church. And when it comes, it doesn't just come as information. It comes with the, as the grace of God changes our lives. You cannot come. We'll see this in coming weeks. You cannot come to God's word and be unchanged by it. You're either going to be made alive by it or hardened by it, but you cannot come to God's word and not be changed by it because it is his power that is coming to us through his word. It's one of the reasons that we are pushing us towards daily Bible reading. It changes your life. It's not big events or big conferences that change our lives. It's not a tremendous experience in our lives. It's a normal daily habit of encountering God's power through his word. And that's like a massive glacier when it happens. It may seem like it's moving slowly. Nothing is happening, but under the surface, strongholds of sin are being eroded by God as he's working. So you might look back over a year or many years and say, I did not realize what God was doing in that moment. 
But I'm a different person today. If you will commit to your daily Bible reading, even if it's just three times a week, four times a week, five times a week, daily, if you'll commit to it, I promise you will not leave unchanged over the next year. Because this is the way God's grace comes to us. Through his word. But it's not enough to just read your Bible at home by yourself. You need the church. Because the church is God's instrument of redemption to carry his word to us. Cyprian was writing in the 200s AD and he says this. He says, you cannot have God for your father who does not have, if you don't have the church for your mother. This is the instrument that God uses. And that's a high view of the church, as it should be. You can't love Jesus without loving his bride. But like any spouse, you are actually loving a real person, not the ideal person that you had in your mind. Real churches are like real people full of all kinds of problems. This is the church of God that is in Corinth. Ancient Corinth is situated in the same area of modern-day Greece. You can look it up on the map today. Corinth is still there. It's moved around a little bit. The center of it moves. But generally, it's on a little, it's on a little isthmus that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the south, to the mainland of Greece, to the north. It also connects two portions of a sea. It was a city that actually had two major harbors. And so, Trade routes went north, south, east, west. And that made, that made Corinth a place of economic prosperity and extremely important. The city was rebuilt, had been destroyed, and was rebuilt about a hundred years prior to Paul's writing by Caesar, who designated it as a place where people could come and rebuild their status within the Roman Empire. You could make something of yourself if you came to Corinth, because you are not constrained by the typical social stratification that was rampant throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. This was a place where ambition, riches, and power were extremely valued. That was the trifecta of value within the city of Corinth. Ambition, riches, and power. Out of all the places where the gospel reached and churches were planted, the culture of our own country probably most closely mirrors that of the city of Corinth, where ambitions, riches, and, and power are our trifecta too. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that we will see repeatedly in the church of Corinth. The Corinthian Christians brought those values back into the church of Jesus Christ. As one commentator says, the church was in Corinth as it ought to be, but Corinth was in the church as it ought not to be. Here are some of the things that we'll see in the church of Corinth. If you're making notes. A man is having sexual relationships with his stepmother. Church members are visiting prostitutes. Church people are dividing into factions based on what leader they follow. Some people are gorging themselves at the love feast that follows the Lord's Supper while others are starving. Some are not taking the Lord's Supper seriously and getting sick, and some are even dying. Some Christians are suing each other over pieces of property. The inside of the church of Corinth reflected the outside of the city of Corinth. Look, if you're looking for an ideal church, which means subtext usually, one without any problems, 
you don't want to be in a church like that. That's not a true church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus only calls really messed up people to himself. He only gathers really broken people to be his own. And then he begins to work in us. The church has problems. That should never surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because we have problems. In fact, it should validate the gospel. It's true. Look at any church. It's true. Jesus didn't come to call the healthy, but sinners who need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from our sin, not just from his judgment. This is a hospital. This this gathering of his people, this is the church of God in Columbia, Tennessee. And it is a hospital because Jesus is the great physician. You don't walk into a hospital and get surprised that there's sick people there with wounds who are detoxing from drugs, being put back together after harming themselves. It's a hospital. Only sick people get to come under the care of a hospital. You're welcome to be a visitor in a hospital, but if you want to be part of Jesus' church, then you have to come in, as the hymn writer says, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And what you'll find is that Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, but joined with power. And that takes us to our third description. This is the church of God that is in Corinth, but it's to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. You are a broken sinner called into his hospital where he's the great physician full of pity and power. But if you're in Christ, that's no longer your primary identity. That's not who you are. Broken sinner is just an assumption. It's not your true self. You are in Christ Jesus. Called by him. And what's true about Jesus is true about you. And this is what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. Now that word sanctified, that's in the past tense. With in a verb tense that, that kind of says, look, this is what's happened. This thing happened in the past, but it has amazing ramifications for the present and to the future. It just kind of carries itself forward. You are sanctified and called to be saints. And those two root words, sanctified and saints, are the same root word for holy. Generally, when we think about holy, we think about moral purity. But rather, we should be thinking, set aside for God. Holy is something that God has gained and brought near. He's appropriated it for himself. That assumes moral purity, but it's so much more. Saying, God has designated you for himself. He's put you on his team. For instance, in the temple, items had to be sanctified. They had to be cleansed, set aside, 
They were drawn out from the corrupted world, brought near to God, which required them to be cleansed. But more than just being cleansed and being made pure, they are designated to be near him and used for his purpose. They were near to the glory of God. You see, a saint is not something that's achieved at the end of the Christian life when you have performed. It is what you are when you are called by God at the beginning of the Christian life. Most of the messaging we get today and day in and day out is some version of when you perform, then you'll be named that thing. When you perform as an all-star on the field, then you'll be named as an all-star. When you achieve success, then you'll be named as successful. When you achieve notoriety, then you'll be named as famous. When you earn your degree, then you'll be conferred a title. Perform, then get named. But this is not the way of Jesus. The heart of the gospel goes like this. In Christ, you're one with him And what's true about Jesus is true about you. God is not calling you to become a saint. He has bestowed that on you in Christ Jesus. Because he has drawn you out of a corrupted world, cleansed you with the blood of his son, and designated you for his own purposes. You are near to God's glory. Imagine you're back in middle school, gym class. Some of you just mentioning that just brings up trauma. It's time to pick teams for the dodgeball tournament. It's the most dreadful time of the day. Some of you are amazing athletes. Your athletic prowess makes you comfortable in this moment. I can't wait. I'm going to show. Everyone's going to see me get picked first. Those are the ones we don't like. Because most of us, are, our lack of athletic ability makes this a absolutely dreadful moment that we fear from the moment we wake up in the morning. Nobody's going to want you. They're going to pick that guy first. Everyone will watch the pool of players get dwindled down until the least is last. And everyone's going to know. You were not called because you could not perform. That's the way the world works. The first is first. The last is last. Ambition is rewarded. And the world naturally does sort us according to our abilities. The law of natural selection really is a pattern in this world. But it's not the way of the kingdom of Jesus. It's not the way that Jesus works. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be his saints. He has brought you near by making you as he is. By making you one with his son. He has made his people holy. Past tense. A work that has implications into the present. Someone might ask you, for instance, when were you married? That verb tense indicates something definitive happened in the past. It was a one-time event that changed everything about you. Now, the rest of your life, you're just learning to become a husband and a wife. When were you made parents? Well, my child, my first child is... Seven years old. I was made a parent then. Have you become a parent? Still learning. Still learning. Likewise, if you ask each other, when were you made holy? 
When were you sanctified? Have you become a saint? Yes, in 1994 when Jesus called me to myself, to himself. On that day, he sanctified me. He made me as holy as he is holy. God brought me near, designated me for his own purpose. You should never look at the current state of your life to answer the question of whether you are holy. You should look upward and backward. The day God called you to himself, united you by faith to his son, that was the day I was called a saint in God's household. That's the day that a new reality was declared. That was my wedding day when I was married to God's own son. Are you a good husband? Still learning. That's the magic of the gospel. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. It is a declaration that comes at the beginning of the Christian life, that comes with the authority of God. I've named you this. Now become what I've named you. There's nothing to achieve. It's already been achieved. The status has been conferred on you, given by Jesus, claimed by you. God's called you this. You might think to yourself, I don't feel that way. I've said this to some of you. I don't care. Some of you said, how, 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 can I for, how can I believe that God's forgiven me if I can't forgive myself? And I've said, who cares if you can forgive yourself? God has said this. This is who you are. Now learn to live out of that reality rather than how you feel. You've been sanctified, called to be holy. Don't look at the defects of the church. Look to Christ who in his power has sanctified for himself a people to be his holy possession. That's the magic of the gospel. The beauty of this good news is this. God has made you in his presence, holy, pure, and without accusation. Not because you've performed, but because Jesus performed in your place and you're one with him. Now the rest of the Christian life is just this. Learn to become who you really are. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we need your help. We're not naturally disposed to believe what you say. We don't naturally think this is what's true about those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is our prayer, our This is our cry. We're begging you, God, use these ordinary elements to confirm in us what is most true. Not how we perceive ourselves, but how you perceive us in Christ. Not how we have performed, but who you have named us, declared us to be, and conferred on us the righteousness of your Son. Help us to believe that. Confirm that in our hearts with these ordinary elements of bread and wine. Set them aside. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to make this gospel 
believable again and again. For we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.